Book Three, Chapter Eight, of the Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mermaid, by Lily Dugall. Book Three, Chapter Eight. God's in His heaven. Caius wondered how long he ought to wait if she did not come out to him. He wondered if she would die of misery, there alone, in the sand-dune, or if she would go mad and meet him in some fantastic humour, all the intelligence scorched out of her poor brain by the cruel words he had said. He had a notion that she had wanted to say her prayers, and, although he did not believe in an answering heaven, he did believe that prayers would comfort her, and he hoped that that was why she asked to be left. When he thought of the terror in her eyes, he felt sanguine that she would come with him. Now that he had seen her distress, it seemed to him worse than any notion he had preconceived of it. It was right that she should go with him. When she had once done that, he would stand between her and this man always. That would be enough. If she should never care for him, if he had nothing more than that, he would be satisfied, and the world might think what it would. If she would not go with him, well, then he would kill Le Maitre. His mind was made up. There was nothing left of hesitation or scruple. He looked at the broad sea and the sunlight and the sky, and made his vow with clenched teeth. He laughed at the words which had scared him the night before, the names of the crimes which were his alternatives. They were made righteousness to him by the sight of fear in a woman's face. It is one form of weakness to lay too much stress upon the emotion of another, just as it is weak to take too much heed of our own emotions. But Caius thought the sympathy that carried all before it was strength. After a while, waiting became intolerable. Leading both horses, he walked cautiously back to a point where he could see Josephine. She was sitting upon the sandy bank near where he had left her. He took his cap in his hand, and went with the horses, standing reverently before her. He felt sure now that she had been saying her prayers, because, although her face was still very pallid, she was composed and able to speak. He wished now she had not prayed. "'You are very kind to me,' her voice trembled, but she gave him a little smile. I cannot pretend that I am not distressed. It would be false, and falsehood is not right. You are very, very kind, and I thank you." She broke off, as if she had been going to say something more, but had wearily forgotten what it was. "'Oh, do not say that!' His voice was like one pleading to be spared a blow. "'I love you. There is no greater joy to me on earth than to serve you.' "'Hush!' she said. "'Don't say that.' I am very sorry for you, but sorrow must come to us all in some way." "'Don't! Don't!' he cried. "'Don't tell me that suffering is good. It is not good. It is an evil. It is right to shun evil. It is the only right. The other is a horrid fable, a lie concocted by priests and devils. Suppose you loved someone—me, for instance—and I was dead and you knew quite certainly that by dying you would come to where I was. Would you call death good or evil?" He demurred. He did not want to admit belief in anything connected with the doctrine of submission. 
I said suppose, she said. I would go through far more than death to come near you. Suffering is just a gate, like death. We go through it to get the things we really want most. I don't believe in a religion that calls suffering better than happiness. But I know you do. No, I don't, she said, and God does not. And people who talk as if he did not want us to seek happiness, even our own happiness, are making to themselves a graven image. I will tell you how I think about it, because I have been alone a great deal, and been always very much afraid, and that has made me think a great deal. And you have been very kind, for you risked your life for my poor people, and now you would risk something more than that to help me. Will you listen while I try to tell you?" Caius signified his assent. He was losing all his hope. He was thinking that when she had done talking he would go and get ready to do murder. But he listened. "'You see,' she began, "'the greatest happiness is love. Love is greedy to get as well as to give. It is all nonsense talking about love that gives and asks for no return. We only put up with that when we cannot get the other. And why? Why should we think it the grandest thing to give what we would scorn to take? You, for instance, you would rather have a person you loved do nothing for you, yet enjoy you, always demanding your affection and presence, than that he or she should be endlessly generous, and indifferent to what you give in return." Yes, he blushed as he said it. Well, then, it is cant to speak as if the love that asks for no return is the noblest. Now listen. I have something very solemn to say, because it is only by the greatest things that we learn what the little ought to be. When God came to earth to live for a while, it was for the sake of His happiness and ours. He loved us in the way that I have been saying. He was not content only to bless us. He wanted us to enjoy Him. He wanted that happiness from us, and He wanted us to expect it from Him and from each other. And if we had answered, all would have been like the first marriage feast, where they had the very best wine, and such lots of it. But you see, we couldn't answer. We had no souls. We were just like the men on Cloud Island who laughed at you when you wanted them to build a hospital. The little self or soul that we had was of that sort that we couldn't even love each other very much with it, and not him at all. So there was only one way and that was for us to grow out of these stupid little souls, and get good big ones that can enjoy God, and enjoy each other, and enjoy everything perfectly." She looked up over the yellow sand-hills into the deep sunny sky, and drew a long breath of the April air involuntarily. "'Oh,' she said, "'a good big perfect soul could enjoy so much!' It seemed as if she thought she had said it all, and finished the subject. "'Well,' said Caius, interested in spite of himself, "'if God wanted to make us happy, he could have given us that kind of soul.' "'Ah, no. We don't know why things have to grow, but they must. Everything grows. You know that. For some reason that is the best way. So there was just one way for those souls to grow in us, and he showed us how. It is by doing what is quite perfectly right, and bearing all the suffering that comes because of it and doing all the giving side of love, because here we can't get much. 
Pain is not good in itself. It is a gate. Our souls are growing all through the gate of the suffering, and when we get to the other side of it, we shall find we have won them. God wants us to be greedy for happiness, but we must find it by going through the gate He went through to show us the way. Caius stood before her, holding the horses. Even they had been still while she was speaking, as if listening to the music of her voice. Caius felt the misery of a wavering will and conflicting thoughts. "'If I thought,' he said, "'that God cared about happiness, just simple happiness, it would make religion seem so much more sensible. But I'm afraid I don't believe in living after death, or that He cares—' What she said was wholly unreasonable. She put out her hand and took his, as if the hand-clasp were a compact. "'Trust God and see,' she said. There was in her white face such a look of glorious hope, that Caius, half carried away by its inspiration, still quailed before her. After he had wrung her hand, he found himself brushing his sleeve across his eyes, as he thought that he had lost her, thought of all that she would have to endure, of the murder he still longed to commit, and felt all the agony of indecision again and suspected that after this he would scruple to commit it. When all this came upon him, he turned and leaned against one of the horses, sobbing, conscious in a vague way that he did not wish to stop himself, but only craved her pity. Josephine comforted him. She did not apparently try to, she did not do or say anything to the purpose, but she evinced such consternation at the sight of his tears, that stronger thoughts came. He put aside his trouble, and helped her to mount her horse. They rode along the beach slowly together. She was content to go slowly. She looked physically too exhausted to ride fast. Even yet probably within her heart the conflict was going forward that had only been well begun in her brief solitude of the sand-valley. Caius looked at her from time to time with feelings of fierce indignation and dejection. The indignation was against Lemaitre the dejection was wholly upon his own account, for he felt that his plan of help had failed, and that where he had hoped to give strength and comfort he had only in utter weakness exacted pity. Caius had one virtue in these days. He did not admire anything that he did, and he did not even think much about the self he scorned. With regard to Josephine he felt that if her philosophy of life were true it was not for him to presume to pity her. So vividly had she brought her conception of the use of life before him, that it was stamped upon his mind in a brief series of pictures, clear, indelible. And the last picture was one of which he could not think clearly. But it produced in him an idea of the afterlife which he had not before. Then he thought again of the cloud under which Josephine was entering. Her decision would in all probability cut down her bright, useful life to a few short years of struggle and shame and sorrow. At last he spoke. But why do you think it right to sacrifice yourself to this man? It does not seem to me right. He knew then what clearness of thought she had, for she looked with almost horror in her face. Sacrifice myself for Lemaitre? Oh, no! I should have no right to do that. But to the ideal right, to God, yes. If I withheld anything from God, how could I win my soul? But how do you know God requires this? 
Ah! I told you before. Why will you not understand? I have prayed. I know God has taken this thing in his own hand." Caius said no more. Josephine's way of looking at this thing might not be true. That was not what he was considering just then. He knew that it was intensely true for her, would remain true for her until the event of death proved it true or false. This was the factor in the present problem that was the enemy to his scheme. Then, furthermore, whether it were true or false, he knew that there was in his mind the doubt, and that doubt would remain with him, and it would prevent him from killing Le Maitre. It would even prevent him from abetting O'Shea, and he supposed that abetting would be necessary. Here was cause enough for dejection, that the whole miserable progress of events which he feared most should take place. And why? Because a woman held a glorious faith, which might turn out to be delusion, and because he, a man, had not strength to believe for certain that it was a delusion. It raised no flicker of renewed hope in Caius to meet O'Shea at the turn of the shore where the boats of the seal-fishery were drawn up. O'Shea had a brisk look of energy that made it evident that he was still bent upon accomplishing his design. He stopped in front of the lady's horse, and said something to her which Caius did not hear. "'Have ye arranged that little picnic over to Prince Edward's?' he called to Caius. Caius looked at Josephine. O'Shea's mere presence had put much of the spiritual aspect of the case to flight, and he suddenly smarted under the realization that he had never put the question to her since she had known her danger, never put the request to her strongly at all. "'Come,' said Josephine, "'I am going home. I am going to send all my girls to their own homes and get the house ready for my husband.' O'Shea, with imperturbable countenance, pushed off his hat and scratched his head. "'I was thinking,' he remarked casually, "'that I'd just send Mammy along with ye to Prince Edward.' Mammy was what he always called his wife. "'I am thinking he'll be real glad to see her, for she's a real respectable woman.' "'Who?' asked Josephine, puzzled. "'Prince Edward, that owns the island,' said O'Shea and she's that down in the mouth it's no comfort for me to have her and she can take the baby and welcome it's a fair sea he looked to the south as he spoke i'd risk both her and the brat on it and skipper pierre is getting ready to take the boat across the ice caius saw that resolution had fled from josephine she too looked at the calm blue southern sea and agonized longing came into her eyes it seemed to Caius too cruel, too horribly cruel, that she should be tortured by this temptation. Because he knew that to her it could be nothing but temptation. He sat silent when O'Shea, seeing that the lady's gaze was afar, signed to him for aid. And because he hoped that she might yield, he was silent, and did not come to rescue her from the tormentor. O'Shea gave him a look of undisguised scorn, but since he would not woo, it appeared that this man was able to do some wooing for him. "'Of course,' remarked O'Shea, "'I see difficulties. If the doctor here was a young man of parts, I'd easier put ye and Mammy in his care. But old Skipper Pierre is no milksop.' Josephine looked, first alert, as if suspecting an ill-bred joke, and then, as O'Shea appeared to be speaking to her quite seriously, forgetting the chaos might overhear, there came upon her face a look of gentle severity. "'That is not what I think of the doctor,' 
I would trust him more quickly than anyone else except you, O'Shea." The words brought to Caius a pang, but he hardly noticed it in watching the other two, for the lady, when she had spoken, looked off again with longing at the sea, and O'Shea, whose rough heart melted under the trustful affection of the exception she made, for a moment turned away his head. Caius saw in him the man whom he had only once seen before, and that was when his child had died. It was but a few moments. The easy, quizzical manner sat upon him again. "'Oh, well, he hasn't got much to him one way or the other, but—this in low, confidential tones.' Caius could not hear her reply. He saw that she interrupted, earnestly vindicating him. He drew his horse back a pace or two. He would not overhear her argument on his behalf, nor would he trust O'Shea so far as to leave them alone together. The cleverness with which O'Shea drove her into a glow of enthusiasm for Caius was a revelation of power which the latter at the moment could only regard curiously. So torn was his heart in respect to the issue of the trial. He was so near that their looks told him what he could not hear, and he saw Josephine's face glow with the warmth of regard which grew under the other's sneers. Then he saw O'Shea visibly cast that subject away as if it was of no importance. He went near to her, speaking low but with the look of one who brought the worst news, and Caius knew, without question, that he was pouring into her ears all the evil he had ever heard of Le Maitre, all the detail of his present drunken condition. Caius did not move. He did not know whether the scene before him represented Satan with powerful grasp upon a soul that would otherwise have passed into some more heavenly region, or whether it was a wise and good man trying to save a woman from her own fanatical folly. The latter seemed to be the case, when he looked about him at the beach, at the boats, at the lighthouse on the cliff above, with a clothesline near it, spread with flapping garments. When he looked, not outward, but inward, and saw Josephine's vision of life, he believed he ought to go forward and beat off the serpent from the dove. The colloquy was not very long. Then O'Shea led Josephine's horse nearer to Caius. "'Madam and my wife will go with ye,' he said. "'I've told the men to get the boat out.' "'I did not say that,' moaned Josephine. Her face was buried in her hands, and Caius remembered how those pretty white hands had at one time beckoned to him, and at another had angrily waved him away. Now they were held helplessly before a white face that was convulsed with fear and shame and self-abandonment. "'There ain't no particular hurry,' remarked O'Shea soothingly, but Mammy has packed up all in the houses that needs to go, and she'll bring warm clothes and all by the time the boat's out, so there's no call for Madam to go back. It would be awful unkind to the girls to set them crying, and—this to Caius—you just go and put up your things as quick as you can." His words were accompanied by the sound of the fishermen putting rollers under the small schooner that had been selected. The old skipper, Pierre, had begun to call out his orders. Josephine took her hands from her face suddenly, and looked towards the busy men with such eager, hungry desire for the freedom they were preparing for her, that it seemed to Caius that at that moment his own heart broke, for he saw that Josephine was not convinced, but that she had yielded. He knew that Mammy's presence on the journey made no real difference in its guilt from Josephine's standpoint. Her duty to her God was to remain at her post. She had flinched from it out of mere cowardice. It was a fall. Caius knew that he had no choice but to help her back to her better self, 
that he would be a bastard if he did not do it. Three times he essayed to speak. He had not the right words. Then, even without them, he broke the silence hurriedly. "'I think you are justified in coming with me. But if you do what you believe to be wrong, you will regret it. What does your heart say? Think.' It was a feeble, stammered protest. He felt no dignity in it. He almost felt it to be the craven insult seen in it by O'Shea, who swore under his breath and glared at him. Josephine gave only a long, sobbing sigh, as one awakening from a dream. She looked at the boat again, and the men preparing it, and then at Caius, straight in his eyes she looked, as if searching his face for something more. "'Follow your own conscience, Josephine. It is truer than ours. I was wrong to let you be tempted,' he said. "'Forgive me.' She looked again at the boat and at the sea, and then, in the staid, subdued manner that had become too habitual to her, she said to O'Shea, "'I will go home now. Dr. Simpson is right. I cannot go.' O'Shea was too clever a man to make an effort to hold what he knew to be lost. He let go her rein, and she rode up the path that led to the island road. When she was gone, O'Shea turned upon Caius with a look of mingled scorn and loathing. "'You're afraid of Le Maitre coming after you,' he hissed. "'Or you have a girl at home, and would find it awkward to bring her and Madame face to face. So you give her up, the most angel-woman that ever trod this earth, to be done to death by a beast, because you're afraid for your own skin. Bah! I had come to think better of you.' With that he cut at the horse with a stick he had in his hand, and the creature, wholly unaccustomed to such pain and indignity, dashed along the shore, by chance turning homeward. Caius, carried perforce as upon the wings of the wind for half a mile, was thrown off upon the sand. He picked himself up, and with wet clothes and sore limbs walked to his little house, which he felt he could no longer look upon as a home. He could hardly understand what he had done. He began to regret it. A man cannot see the forces at work upon his inmost self. He did not know that Josephine's soul had taken his by the hand and lifted it up, that his love for her had risen from earth to heaven when he feared the slightest wrongdoing for her more than all other misfortune. End of Book Three, Chapter Eight. Recording by Bill Borst.